Thank you. You can be seated. Welcome, Sunridge. If you're a guest here, uh, welcome. You know, we, uh, about five weeks ago, we started just reading through and studying this letter that comes from uh, the Apostle Paul called the Letter to the Colossians. And uh, I just want to give a big shout out to uh, Jed and Danny who like have owned this space the last couple of weeks and have continued. Con yeah, you can applaud for them. Uh, you know, they've just done such a great job of unpacking this letter so that so that we can understand it. And if you're if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's writing, uh, the letters that he writes in the New Testament, you know that he usually starts with ideas, and that's what he did in this letter. It's like there's big ideas, and the big idea in this letter is that Christ is preeminent, that he's the biggest thing in our lives, and he's central to our faith. And um, yet always by the middle of his book or his letter, he gets real practical. He just gets down to the brass tacks of what all of this truth means, and that's what happens today. We're going we're gonna to drop into right in the middle of his letter in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to put the words up on the screen, and we're going to read it together. But before we do, I just want you to know what you're looking at here. You know, this letter was written around 60 A.D. to a specific group of believers in the city of Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. And it was written by the Apostle Paul, the most influential Christian voice of that day. He writes these words from prison, and yet he is prompted by the Holy Spirit, in spite of whatever his circumstances are, to give these words of encouragement, to understanding, instruction, and guidance to this church. And so today, by the miracle of technology, we have these up on the screen, but you know, these, these words were originally written on a parchment or an animal skin, and they were bound together or rolled up in a scroll, and they were taken from where Paul was and delivered to Colossae. And often, uh, whoever delivered that letter would be the one to read it to them for the very first time. The church would gather together, and they would listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say. And then, uh, if possible, over time, they would make copies of this. But when they heard it, they heard it in a way that, I mean, we're, st we're, we're studying it to learn from it. And, but when we say that Paul was inspired to write these things, inspiration meant something so much more to them. They're, they're brand new Christians. This church is like maybe five years old, and they're hearing from the great apostle Paul. And he's taught them things that in their new faith, they probably didn't know that how Jesus Christ must be preeminent in their lives and he is central and they're complete in him. But now he starts talking about some of the practical things. And I want us to just read through this, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. I want you to read along with me. Don't leave me hanging out here and just follow along. And then we're going to like break it down. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed 
which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know, you can see a theme emerging from this part of Paul's letter, and it's a common theme, that when a person becomes a Christian, when they are in Christ, Paul often describes that experience as being, you're a new creation. Your old is gone, your new has come. And when he says that, he's not just talking about like, I have a new belief system, I have a new resident in my body, the Holy Spirit, uh, I just have a new creed. He's saying that this new thing that's happened in us has a new way of living. It requires change. In fact, my big idea, which you know that I like to do for my messages, is this, and I think this is Paul's big idea. Following Jesus is a life of change. Following Jesus is a life of change. And yet you and I know that change doesn't always come easy, right? Often, we're resistant to change. I love this quote I'm going to put up on the screen by James Kenneth Galbraith. He was an economics professor for over half a century at Harvard. And he said that faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving there is no need to do so, almost everybody gets busy on the proof. I love that because it's true of me often because isn't it true we're always looking for something that's easier than change? That's why maybe Paul talked about change being something that is learned. In his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 22, he said, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says that this putting off and putting on, this experiencing and implementing the newness that's in us, requires change, and that requires us to be taught how to change. Change requires defining what those changes should be, explaining. Often it requires coaching and encouraging, sometimes enforcing 
those changes. But in the end, it all adds up that change is often difficult. In this part of Paul's letter, he identifies at least four ways that we need to change when we become Christians. The first, he mentions, is a change in our affections. Our affections have to change. In verse 1, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ because you have become a Christian. And the picture is you rose again, like him, from an old life to a new. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then set your minds on Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul says that one of the changes that has to take place is our affections. And he says specifically here, our minds need to change and our hearts need to change. And in that, he's saying that this is not typical. This is not normal. He mentions that we're all prone to earthly desires and earthly ways of thinking. And we, that's something that has to change in us. And when he says to place our affections on things above, it's not like he's just mentioning, you know, we have to think about a new location. He's talking about who's at that location. It's not where, it's who. It's Jesus. Our affections on things above is not an escapism. I love what uh, Dr. D.L. Moody said about this. He said, we can become so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. Maybe you've met, you know, one of those Christians that just seems to be like out of touch with what's going on in the world, maybe distant and isolated from it. That is not what Paul is saying here when we set our affections on things above. He's not saying that this world doesn't matter. He's saying it does. And that's why it's so much, so important that our hearts and our minds be set on Christ. One of the things that when I was studying through uh, the first part of this book and I didn't mention was in verse 2 of chapter 1, as Paul opens up the letter, he says, I'm writing to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And it dawned on me that that is how we live as Christians. We are both in Christ and in the world at the same time, right? It's like we don't get to choose one or the other. We don't get to be all in the world, and we can't be not at Temecula Valley. This is where we are. But yet, even though we live in this time, in this space, we are in Christ. And our job, or like our calling, is to bring the kingdom of God into our community and our time. Because we are in Christ. And God has placed us right here. The only way that happens is for our affections and our mind is set on things that are not here but are on Christ. In fact, affection is fundamental to following Christ. Remember, Jesus was often asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing that you could tell us, Jesus? And he said, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Set your affections on God. If you know the Bible, in particular the Old Testament prophets, they often use the imagery of adultery when our affections are drawn away from God. It's like God gets jealous. And change is all about heart and mind. It's all about what we think about. It's all about where, where our affections and our priorities are set. 
you want, if you wonder, like, why, why is it so hard for me to change? Why, why do I want to still be in this old life and not the new? Why, why aren't I interested in engaging the world through this lens? It's typically because our minds and our hearts are not where God wants them to be. In the end, we either change or we don't change because of where our hearts and our minds are. How does one set their heart or their mind on things above? Well, if you're a Christian, you know, the Bible says you have the Holy Spirit in you. And the Holy Spirit nudges us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's word to us. The Holy Spirit uh, nudges you toward action. And so, as a Christian, don't you feel that sometimes? Don't you feel God's wanting you to move? And yet, it's also part of our intention. Are we, if our heart and mind is toward Christ, then, like, then we're leaning toward the changes that God wants to make in us, even if they're difficult. And, we, you know, we, we've done this this morning. We've, we've gathered together to worship God. Hopefully we all did that because we want to experience his presence in our life. And because we're leaning toward what he wants to do in us. There's a big difference in going to church and coming to worship. It really comes down to where our hearts and minds are. Because if God has has your heart, he has you. The second thing that Paul writes about that needs to change is the old ways have to go. The old ways have to go. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You know, this this language, the imagery that Paul is giving here is, he's saying execute these things. He's saying, cut off its head, put it on the cross, and crucify it, which would be common execution methods. Put these things under the executioner's axe. These are things that you used to walk in. You notice that? You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. You know, for some of us, it's not a used to. And that, gets, that goes back to where our affections and our mind is set. You know, this is kind of like a, a brief laundry list of sexual sin, isn't it? Paul talks about immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. And you know, this is one of the things that the Bible is clear and consistent throughout, from the Old Testament to the New. In fact, I would say that In the New Testament, God gets even stricter on this. In the Old Testament, it seems like almost that God is is kind of like overlooking polygamy and some of the people like David and Solomon and, you know, and there's adultery and, you know, like God leaves them in these leadership positions. But when, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you know, marriage is one man, one woman for a lifetime. Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. 
These are part of the old ways that God goes. And isn't, do you find it interesting that greed makes it in the list? That's an outlier, isn't it? Like, whoa, is, is he putting greed on the same level as these sexual sins? You know, it's pretty easy to get a moral life, but like how, how hard is it to like break away from the lust for things? If our affections have changed us, that's the main But he goes on. It's like, like, you're not done. It's like, uh, you know, those old Pope Peel commercials, you know. Wait, there's more. And a lot of us are holding on to stuff. And I think that, that this is what Paul's getting at. Even to them in verse 8, he says, but now, I'm not done yet, but now uh, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You know, this is a really interesting list, and one of the ways that it, it, uh, it demonstrates how the, the language that the Bible was written in is different than our language. We're limited in English, but there are some Greek words that have nuanced differences that, that I'd like to bring out. You, at first glance, it doesn't anger and rage seem to be the same thing, but it's not in the original language. The anger word that Paul uses here is like the flash. It's like, you know, some of us just have explosive tempers, right? It's like, boom, you know, but this kind of anger is just like a flash anger. It's, it's here and it's gone. But the rage word is more of a state of mind. It's like that seething, kind of boiling, unhappiness, like just kind of you're just like all the time, you're just anger's just under the surface. Often that explodes, but it's not the explosive kind of anger that just coming, comes and goes. This rage is a thing that just like, doesn't it seem like our world is overtaken by that right now? It's become like, a virtue. Then he, he talks about malice and slander, which is taking that anger, whether flashing or, ra or like seething, and turning it on a person. Malice is with, with intent to hurt, and then slander is to, to undermine them. So if you just look at it it's like, and, and tear down their name and berate them as a person, it gets personal. So we have angry people, who want to hurt others with it and take away their good name by giving them a label or whatever it may be. And in abusive language, or actually uh, the, the NIV says filthy language, you'll be relieved to know that that's not profanity. All of you potty mouth people. Okay? But don't cut yourself too much slack because what this says, is it's abusive language which often profanity is used for, right? But this is, this is a, a, just a list of ways in which we use our words to hurt people and give each other labels and categories that dismiss one another. This is part of the old ways. Unfortunately, I would imagine then and now, It's more a current way. It's a cultural way. 
And I think we have some explanation of this, and I think this totally, I can just see the connection. In verse 11, we have an indication of why, what's causing this. Verse 11, he says, Here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. And is in all, Paul's identifying a bunch of differences that they would have had. There's Jew and Gentile, which is an obvious difference in their understanding of religion. One has a huge history with God and traditions that are built on that relationship, and someone else has none. They might even come from an anti-God background, and here they are, all worshiping next to one another. Look next to you and see, do you have a Jew or a Gentile next to you? We're, we're just different. This is ethnic. And then he's, he's, he's pointing out even specifically what that means in religious traditions to be circumcised or uncircumcised. And then he has barbarian, Scythian, which are not opposites. They're, they're the same, only different. A barbarian is the uncouth, the warriors, like the picture Viking. But a Scythian is like barbarian times ten. When they would conquer a people, they would use their skulls as bowls to eat out of. Look next to you and see if you have a Scythian or a barbarian, you know. Probably a little food on their face or something. And so, and then, you know, like slave or free, that's a whole economic thing. You get it. It's like there's all these differences. And because they're in Christ and because they've all claimed the name of Christ and here they are coming to worship together, just like us, there's all this friction because of their differences. Don't you know that when people have differences, we get angry and we flash and we slander and we label people to diminish their lifestyle or their view, whatever it may be. And Paul is saying here, that's part of the old way. That's part of your old dysfunctional conflict handling method. It was their differences in the conflicts that, that created these problems. And yet Paul says, for the Christian, this is an ongoing work to get rid of that part of our lives. You know, every gardener has to pull weeds. You don't get just plant the flowers and do all the good stuff. You have to pull weeds constantly. And Paul here is saying, you got to keep pulling these weeds. They're part of the old way. Now, before Paul goes on to other changes, he inserts a, another critical concept. And, but this is another way in which we have to change. We ha you have to change what you think God thinks about you. You have to change what you think God thinks about you. In verse 12, he says, therefore... In other words, what I'm about to tell you is based on this, and you got to get this in order to get it, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Paul goes back to the heart, only with a twist. In verses 1 through 4, he's talking about what we should love, where our affection should be. But here in verse 12, he's, it's a reminder of who loves you. You see the difference? In speaking of you, those who have named the name of Christ, you are chosen. Which means that God has picked you. He's adopted you on purpose. 
uses the word holy, which isn't just like, you know, just pious, stand here and look very religious. That's the picture we have. Holy means to be set apart. It's like, you're so special. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want anything to ruin you. And then he says, dearly loved. I don't think we need any explanation of that. I think I mentioned before, I had a child. One of my, I had a child. She's still my child. <laughs> one of my children um, used to say, Dad, I think I'm God's favorite. <laughs> yeah, you are. You know, you can just never hear I love you too much. Do you agree? It's like, are there any wives here that say, my husband is saying I love you too much? Would you identify yourself? Because if that's true, you can't be in any home group with me because you're going to make me look bad. But um, any, any husbands, wives says I love you too much? No. Like you can never hear it enough. That's true of parents, children. That's true of church members. I love you, Sunridge. I love you too, man. <laughs> That's true of pastors. We need love too, baby. Well, I'm going to get all teary-eyed. So say it a lot. Say I love you a lot. You know, John said God is love. So if, the, if there's one thing we ought to be reaffirming with each other, is God loves you which stands in stark contrast to the stuff that had to go, right? The thing about this is, there, this, is a, this is as much a struggle as getting rid of the old life, isn't it? Isn't it, for some of you especially, that's, the, that's a hard thing for you to believe, that God loves you, that you're beloved, chosen, and set apart. And that will be a lifelong struggle for you that needs to change. That God loves you. Because some of us are having to undo some really bad imprinting early on in our Christian life. Some of us have heard about the guilt God and the judgment God and the angry God. And we're infected. It's like, it's like the coronavirus, only it's a corona theology. And by the way, why is everyone all freaking out here? None, no one's hugging me today. Every, no handshake, your fist pounding. What are you afraid of? <coughs> <laughs> Some of you, us, we have the corona guilt god virus. And if I could say anything to you, if you just, if you just woke up because people laugh, God loves you. He's smitten with you. But you're going to struggle with that just like getting rid of your old life. You're going to have to constantly remind yourself that this is something that has to change. You need to change the way you think about how God thinks about you. And if you don't get this, you're always going to be hampered in your Christian life. In fact, you're going to be all jacked up because how do we respond to people that only have criticism for us or like, you know, like and teach us a better way, or like, you know, it's like always picking at you. You know, do you, do you run to that person? No, you avoid that person. That's in our human nature. And if we think that God is picking on us, that God 
is mad at us all the time, that God's never happy with us, what, what is that going to do with our relationship with God? In fact, I bet you a lot of you, either yourself or you know somebody, that when you feel like you're kind of drifting, maybe you've made some bad choices, you stop going to church. Because you, you, you're uncomfortable to be near God. And I know that there are people here today that you're, like, you took a big risk. You don't believe in God or you don't know if you believe in God. And, like, the, the, one of the things that's keeping you away from God is some of the imprinting that you've heard that makes you think that God does not love you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that none of us measure up. But that doesn't matter to God. Paul wrote about this in Romans. He said, God uh, loved us so much that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Our performance, our yesterday, our this morning, that's not, that's not how God sees us. He sees us through his son, Jesus Christ. And do you think he loves his son? And he loves us just the same. In fact, I think if God were sitting here right now, he would say, I care about you more than you could ever imagine. You got to change the way you think God thinks about you. Because if you don't believe in God's love for you, you will never believe in his plan for you. And so you'll never make the changes that he wants to make in you. Now, God's love, in our understanding of that, is the basis for the last change. And it's that the new ways have to take over. The new ways must take over. In verse 13, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul uh, is mixing his metaphors here. I don't know if you noticed, but first he talked about putting to death the old ways. And then when he said, you know, now also, rid yourselves of anger, malice, and wrath, these things. He, he changed metaphors here. And some of your Bible versions say to put on. And it's like he's now using uh, imagery of like getting rid of your old dirty rags and putting on the clean new clothes. And he's drawing on even what was, became a, um, a tradition at that time in the early church where if uh, someone was going to be baptized, they would give them a clean white robe to be baptized in, signifying the new life that they have. But why would you ever take something so clean and pure and put it over something that's dirty? The old has to go. But it doesn't, doesn't end there. It's the new has to come. These are the things that we put on as our new clothing, having gotten rid of the old, dirty rags. We don't need to explain these, right? Compassion, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving our grievances. Footnote, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of it, the big cloak, the the big coat that goes on over it is love. That's how we're supposed to be dressed, Christian. You ever gone to something where you weren't dressed right? You ever gone to an event? I think, 
I can't remember if I told this story before, but early on when we moved in our track, the house that we live in now, we got invited to a Christmas party by a neighbor who lived right across the street. And they, he said, hey, I was out front. And he says, hey, you know, we're having a little casual get-together at the house, you know, Friday night. We'd love for you guys to come. A lot of the neighbors are coming. I'm like, awesome. And he says, I'm going to make uh, brisket. And so, you know, I'm like, now how casual does that sound? He said casual and he said brisket. So I'm like, hey, Cindy makes awesome baked beans. He goes, yeah, bring baked beans. So having understood it the way that I understood it, I went over in jeans and flip-flops and Cindy had, you know, probably blue jeans and a t-shirt on and Reeboks or something like that. And we walked into their house and they're like, they had a really nice house, you know. They didn't have the white track tile. Everything was like blown out nice. And everybody was dressed to the nines. The guys are all in like casual but nice attire. Some ladies have on black like party dresses, you know, like it's elegant. And I'm thinking, he said brisket. I told him we're bringing beans. <laughs> And it's all displayed out on their granite countertops, lovely, you know, and everyone's like sipping their wine. <laughs> and we look like two country bumpkins walking into this party, and Cindy's just shooting daggers at me, like, you know, and I know what that's about. And so we endure, um, you know, I just roll with it, but we leave. And we don't even get out of the driveway. And Cindy says, I am so humiliated. How could you have not told me this? And I'm like, no, no, he said casual, brisket. That's beans, that's jeans. No, no, no. It was a long night. <laughs> I was dressed wrong. You know, a lot of us Christians are going out into the world and we're not dressed right. These are the clothes that we should be wearing. It doesn't matter what everybody else is wearing at the party. This is what God wants us to wear. And by the way, this is, this is the second part of what Paul says. He says, get rid of the old, right? Because your affections are on God, not, not things of the world. And he says, and God loves you. He loves you so much that these are the new clothes that you should wear. A lot of us stop. Somewhere in the middle. We get to neutral. We get to like, I get rid of the old and now I'm good. No. Now you're just naked. You got to put on the new. And these are the new things. If you look back on your week, how were you dressed? I know, I don't want to think about that either. So, and I don't know about you, but I think the second list is harder pretty easy to kind of get rid of some of the old junk. It's a lifetime process to put on the new. But that's the way it is. Because we are in a constant and comprehensive transformation program. It's constant and it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive because you can't select just the parts you want. You can't just get your highlighter out and go, oh, I really like that part but I'm going to ignore this part. You have to take it off. See, what good is a community of faith that gets all their moral stuff right but has malice and a lack of humility toward one another? 
And what good is a community of faith who embraces people who are different and we're caring and supportive, yet immorality flourishes unchecked and we're not living the way God wants us to live. It's a comprehensive change. And if I, I got news for you, um, if you don't want to change, you pick the wrong religion. The change is also constant. In verse 9, Paul says you've, uh, you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And there's a fundamental difference in these words that Paul is using in the original language when he says you've taken off your old self and you've put on the new self. Those are in past tense. It's like that's something that happens when you become a Christian. God replaces your old life with a new. And that's, that's not on you, that's on Jesus. But then he goes on to say that new self is being renewed. And that's in the present. That's constant. There's constant change going on in our lives. I'm going to have the band come out, come up. And uh, while they're coming, I just, you know, when I think about change, what God wants to do in my life, I'm super practical. And I, I think about a lot of these exercise programs that so many of us have joined. You know, like some of you have been in camp transformation, and there's a gym right next door. We have personal trainers there. And it's all about, like, you sign up for their program, and then you're going to change. But, you know, it's not the signing up and paying your money that does the change. That's only the start. When you, when you became a Christian, you just signed up. That's all you did. Now it's time for the hard work. And the change doesn't come unless you put in the hard work. And the hard work is only going to come if your mind and your heart are in the right place. Because that will give you the perspective to get rid of some of the stuff in your life that's destructive and it's hurting you. But you can't really move forward in that new life until you really embrace the idea that God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And you, you can't do anything to make him stop loving you. And when you fully grasp that, that love overwhelms you. And, and it's like, well, I, I want to express that to the people that I work with, that I live with, that I do life with. I want to bring humility to that relationship and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and forbearance. Those, these are the changes that God wants to make in us. And it's never ending. Again, it, you're not going to change. God is not going to change his, his uh, idea or his, his relationship with you. But he is going to keep working on you to change. It's only because he loves you and he wants us through those changes to kind of merge two worlds of what God has done in our lives, the kingdom of heaven coming here on earth. Your will in heaven be done here. He does that through his people, demonstrating what that kingdom life looks like. Let's pray.